you're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. Welcome to the Telltale Podcast. Thank you guys for coming. We've got some interesting subjects to cover today. We're going to be covering whether or not I'm a cult expert. I'm also going to be talking about the origins of the term Bernie Bros. Then we're going to touch on a religious group encouraging its congregants to drink poison. We're going to be talking about Ken Ham, Kent Hovind, Young Earth Creationism, and the state of the Ark Encounter. But before we get into all of that, let's listen to some voicemails. Hi, Owen. This is Frank from North Carolina. Curious about something. I'd like to hear you address this in in a video or maybe a podcast. If suddenly, for some strange reason, The Jehovah's Witnesses said, okay, you're not going to shun anybody anymore. We're going to end shunning effective today. I'm not going to do that, but let's say they did. Do you think most devout witnesses would just continue shunning anyway just because it's part of the culture? Thanks. Love to hear you talk about that. Take care. Really good question, actually. Yes, they would continue to shun largely as a culture. And the reason that I say that is because Jehovah's Witnesses are not banned from speaking with family members who are no longer Jehovah's Witness. So, for example, my mom will not be disfellowshipped for talking to me. She could be counseled for it. The elders may talk to her and say, you know, this may not be a great idea, but she would not be disfellowshipped for it. If my old friend Sean talked to me, he could be disfellowshipped for it. That is a possibility. But Jehovah's Witnesses don't know the difference. They don't realize that that's even one of the rules even though it's clear as day in some of their literature that they will not be disfellowshipped for it. So, yes, the culture demands that people continue shunning disfellowshipped people, whether that is a requirement by the Watchtower Society or not. One more thing I wanted to touch on about this is the fact that even if the Watchtower Society were to come out and say shunning is not acceptable in this religion. We don't want people to shun anymore, and then just leave it at that. Or even if they just changed their literature so that there were no mentions of shunning, you don't have to shun disfellowship people anymore. It doesn't matter in the context of whether or not it's a cult because they're still doing it. Culturally, it matters. So whether or not the Watchtower Society, the governing body, endorses these cult-like practices whether or not they are themselves enforcing behavior modification or themselves enforcing shunning or threatening friends and family does not matter really. Ultimately, what matters is whether or not it's in the culture. If the leadership endorses or doesn't endorse these cult-like practices, completely irrelevant. What matters is if it's in the culture. That's why largely I say that Mormonism is still to blame if people in Mormonism shun family members who leave the religion, even though the Mormon leadership does not tell people to shun family members or friends who leave, they still do it. And that's what matters. It's a cult because they have those cult-like qualities, whether or not the leadership is forcing people to do it. So good question. Thank you for that. Hey, Telltale. I'm just calling to... To say, first off, thank you for all that you do. I am a former Mormon myself, and 
also I served a mission for two years and I have since left the church and that has to do a lot with your videos. I just have a quick question about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, when I was a missionary, I taught a Jehovah's Witness, and one of the biggest disagreements that we all had is about uh, nation building or something like that. Um, he would talk about how God gave us the world and did not give us or did not intend for us to build nations or something like that. I just, my question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses against um, nations in general? Thank you very much. That's actually a really good question, because Jehovah's Witnesses have really interesting views regarding politics, I guess you could say. They're very uh, anti-political. They don't want to take part in politics in any way, shape, or form. Now, I've covered this on my channel before, but I just want to touch on it one more time since the caller asked me about it. Generally, Jehovah's Witnesses are anti or apolitical because they believe that they live in a theocracy. They believe that they live in a government, a sub-government within the U.S. and within European countries um, that is run by Jehovah or Jesus. They believe that it's run by them and Jehovah or Jesus pass down the information to the governing body members who then pass the information down to the elders who then pass it down to the members. Um, they think that they live in a sub-government and for that reason they believe in following the laws of the land up until it conflicts with the laws of their own theocracy, basically. They are very uh, anti-government in a lot of ways, anti-politics in many ways. You could get in a lot of trouble for engaging in any kind of political discussions or anything like that as a Jehovah's Witness. The thing that you rose, the question that you rose, is a pretty solid question. Thank you for asking that. Hey, Owen, this is Rose. I just wanted to know why you're so adorable. Thanks. That would be my girlfriend. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think you're adorable, too. Okay, let's continue on. Hi, this is Shannon Q. I am calling because I wanted to ask, if, especially considering that you focus on the BITE model and it has foundations in psychology, have you taken note of the fact that there is essentially a large growing movement of religious, specifically Christian in America, people who are essentially attempting to debunk psychology and replace it with their own version when it comes to therapeutic practices. I think it's an important subject to cover, and I know that you're uniquely qualified to assist people like me in addressing it. And have a good day. Bye. That's a really good point. Thank you for calling in, Shannon Q. That is the Shannon Q. I feel honored. That's a really good point. I know I can think of at least a couple of examples of this. The first one has been an issue in my life very recently with me addressing Teal Swan. So the thing is, when psychology was young, there were a couple of people who were considered to be the fathers of psychology. Okay, so Freud comes to mind. He's the big one. Everybody knows Freud is kind of the father of psychology. During that time that Freud was operating in the field, there was another psychologist named Carl Jung, and he, he's also considered the father of psychology in many ways. But 
basically everything that Freud and Carl Jung have proposed has been debunked by modern psychology at this point. Like, they started the field, they legitimized it as a science, and they, they pushed people to study it in real ways, real settings. But if you smoke a cigarette, it's not because you're obsessed with dicks, like Freud would say. Not every human on Earth is obsessed with sleeping with their mother. That's just, that's not based in psychology at all. I mean, we have debunked that stuff. And Carl Jung was very um, spiritual, maybe is the word I'm looking for. He was very spiritual. He held a lot of the same views that Teal Swan holds today. Now, if you don't know who Teal Swan is, then go check, check out my main channel. I've been releasing videos about Teal Swan lately. Really, really fascinating subject, so give it a look. But she quotes Carl Jung constantly as an authority. Now, like I said, the guy has been debunked. Basically, everything that he said has been delegitimized at this point. But she still quotes him to disprove modern psychology in a lot of ways. And she built this whole thing off of his ideas from 75 to 100 years ago. Um, and she, I don't think that Teal Swan came up with shadow work, that somebody else did, but she uses shadow work a lot. Shadow work is completely based off of BS. Like, there's no substance to shadow work at all. It's like you're trying to dig into your personality and fix things about yourself. Kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, except completely worthless and made up. Anyway, point is, Teal Swan quotes Carl Jung constantly and creates this pseudoscientific BS out of his ideas. That's one example that I've heard. Another example of what Shannon Q is talking about here is Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. A lot of people view those as kind of the quintessential way to get addicts clean, where in reality, it's just a religious program that is not based in, in science at all. It is 100% a religious program, not a psychological program. It, it is not built on psychology. Here's one example of, their, of AA and NA's ideas that falls flat. Once you get clean, you are in recovery, and you will be in recovery until the day you die. You will always be a recovering addict. You will always be a recovering alcoholic. I don't buy that. I was not told that when I was going to group therapy for my addictions. They never said a word about it because I went to secular therapy, not Alcoholics Anonymous or, or Narcotics Anonymous. I have been to those classes before. But none of it was built off of psychology. I, I am a recovered addict, not a recovering addict. The idea that you are sick and have to fight to be well until the day you die is a religious concept. Think sin. You were born sick, you will die sick, and you're commanded to be well. I don't buy it. So anyway, those are a couple of good examples that I, I have. And you're right. We do need to focus in on that stuff. So I appreciate you calling in with that message. Hi, it's Sarah. I'm unholy Sarah. I'm mostly calling because you said to, but you know, while I'm here, I asked a Jehovah's Witness about the differences between their Bibles and other Bibles, and they said there are no real differences. And what's your thoughts on that, I guess? 
Thank you for that. Unholy Sarah is actually a YouTuber who is up and coming in the community. So thank you for the call. I appreciate that. That's a really good question. Are, is there a difference between the Jehovah's Witness Bible and traditional Bibles? Say like the, the NIV Bible. Yes, there is. Now Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that there isn't a fundamental difference. And I guess you could say that. Um, I mean, they didn't add books. They didn't remove books or any of that. But they translated it themselves and they didn't, um, they didn't list the translators or their credentials. They also replaced every instance of the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, with the name Jehovah, which we'll get into why that's flawed in a little while. Uh, for this immediate moment, I just want to point out that that's, that's fabricated. Okay, the name Jehovah is fabricated and is not how it was pronounced when the Bible was written, is not how it's supposed to be pronounced at all. It's supposed to be pronounced Yahweh, basically, with some accent marks in different places, but for the most part, it's supposed to be pronounced Yahweh. So that's one of the main differences, okay? they I think they put the name Jehovah in the Bible like over 6,000 times or something like that. They also went through, um, when they were translating the Bible, they had already established this religion pretty firmly. Like, it already had an established belief system. They already had their ideas about 1914 and 607 BCE and the second generation. Well, not the second generation, the first generation. They had their ideas about the first generation and, and all of these theological ideas. They were already formed out for the most part because I think they wrote this Bible like in the 50s or something like that. And they've added revisions to it over the years, right? So the, the religion had been established for a good 75 years before they translated the Bible. Which means, as they went through the manuscripts and things like that, the words that they chose to translate kind of had the slant that comes with already holding that belief, if you will. I have examples, and I wish that I'd come prepared for those examples. I'll, I'll find some way of release. Maybe I'll add something into this clip in post-editing. But there's a lot of stuff pertaining to the beast of revelation and things like that. Here's my top example. Jehovah's Witnesses believe some very specific things about the United Nations. If you look into some Christian theology, they believe that the European Union is the great beast of revelation. But Jehovah's Witnesses have believed it was the United Nations for a very long time. If you read the verse describing the beast in Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, it says, the wild beast that was but is not. It is also an eighth king, but it springs from the seven and goes off into destruction. The NIV Bible reads differently. In the NIV Bible, the verse says, the beast who once was and is now not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The King James Version says, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. Jehovah's Witnesses changed the phrasing to springs from the seven, where the King James Version and the NIV Bibles translated it to is of the seven. They use that term springs from to infer that the Bible is talking about the UN and 
not the EU or something else, because the UN sprang from other nations. It came into existence from the others. So they made little changes like that as they were translating it, which supported what they already believed. It seems insignificant at its face, but it forms out their entire theology. And anytime they get some serious quote-unquote new light from God, they revise their Bible to fit it. Obviously, that's what God meant, because he revealed it to the governing body, so it clears up the translation errors. They aren't getting their doctrine from the Bible. They're getting it from the governing body, and they're modifying their Bible to reflect what the governing body members say it should. Also, the Trinity, they changed some things in the Bible to make it look like there was no Trinity, definitively. Now, there, there was no Trinity. That was legitimately made up, but they did change words in it to make it uh, come across differently. There are small differences. They're just a word here and there. And I don't know if it was intentional or not. I'm not, I'm not going to claim that it was intentional, what they did, changing the words here or there. But the end result is the same. If you want my recommendation for what Bible to use as a reference or to read, I would suggest the NIV. There are better translations. There are worse translations. That's just the one that I happen to have lying around the house. It's in plain English. It's not in old English like the King James Version. It's got the most up-to-date information, as we'll see in a little while. Um, I think it's a solid translation for the most part, as solid as you can get. Hi, Owen. It's Navadia. Um, I just wanted to know, are there any points in the bite model that are more significant than others in regards to undue influence? That's a good question. Let's take a look at the bite model real quick and, and, and see. I believe so. And, and let me explain how the bite model is structured and why some of these things are more significant, okay? I talked about this in a video that released recently on my main channel. Behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. Those are four categories, right? The reason that it's those four and not something else is because those are the four ways in which people will reach out for help to reestablish their authentic identity when a cult is trying to program a cult identity into them. So, for example, if you're trying to control people's behavior by exploiting them financially, by controlling their clothing and hairstyle, by telling them where and with whom they can live, you'll reach out in emotional ways. You'll want to talk to friends and family. You may be looking for happiness outside of the group. If they try to withhold and distort information or forbid you from talking to ex-members or critics, you're going to try to reestablish your own identity. Start looking outside the group for other information. Uh, you're going to be reaching out to friends. You're going to be thinking to yourself, is this true? You're going to start questioning it. That's the point. So these four categories, if you control somebody's behavior, then this one is going to pop up and, and they're going to start acting out emotionally. If you try to control their information, they're going to start thinking about what's happening to them. That's kind of the idea behind the B-I-T-E model. You have to control these four aspects of a person's life if you want to maintain control of them completely without risk of them escaping the situation that they're in. So there are some really key points under each section that are really, really relevant. Like if you can 
hammer down on these things and make sure that people are being obedient to these things, then you got him for life. Under behavior control, modifying behavior with rewards and punishments, that's, that is the one for behavior control. You're trying to program in a cult personality. If you can manage to program in a cult personality with rewards and punishments, you've got them for life. That's really the, the main point for behavior control. Under thought control, black and white, us versus them, good versus evil thinking. That would be the main one. And also one that I added, which is placing exaggerated importance on events or ideas. I don't know that cults specifically set out to do that, but it is a byproduct of a cult. Absolutely no question about it. Under information control, this one is all about controlling a narrative. So you don't want people hearing the bad things that are being said about a cult. In fact, you only want people hearing good things about the cult. You only want people hearing what the cult has to say, and that's it. That's really what information control is about, ultimately, is narrative construction and control. I guess if I had to pick one of these, I would say deliberately withhold and distort information is probably the main point on information control. And under emotional control, I would say shunning if you disobey or disbelieve is one of the main points under emotional control. If a group is discouraging, not even necessarily shunning, but discouraging you from talking to friends or family who disobey or disbelieve, then it's almost certainly a cult. Those are really the four main points, I would say. Shun you if you disobey or disbelieve. Controlling a narrative, which technically isn't under information control, but we'll call it deliberately withhold and distort information. Instilling black and white us versus them and good versus evil thinking and modifying behavior with rewards and punishments. Those are the four ways that cults primarily control people. In addition to that, to be a cult, in my opinion, you have to have a hierarchy, a leadership, that is enforcing these things. A, a leadership that is telling you you should not talk to family members who don't believe it anymore. A leadership who is deliberately withholding and distorting information and controlling a narrative. A leadership that is instilling black and white, us versus them, good versus evil thinking. And a leadership who's modifying your behavior with rewards and punishments to program a cult identity into you and replace your authentic identity with the cult identity. In my opinion, that's what is required to be a cult. But there's this really interesting phenomenon where people take on the characteristics of a unified group exactly like a cult, exactly like a cult does, with no leadership. That's what I call a cult-like mindset. I feel like that name doesn't really do it justice. At some point, I may come up with a more apt name for it. I don't know. But a good example of that would be the Flat Earth Movement. There are leaders in the Flat Earth Movement, but they don't really enforce a cult-like mindset like Jehovah's Witnesses do. It's not a unified group that controls things like that. But the group is still unified in a lot of ways. It, there's just no leadership to it. So I would call that a cult-like mindset right now. But I'm going to 
I'm going to come up with a better name for it at some point in the near future. Uh, thank you so much for calling in with that. It was extremely useful, uh, an extremely useful question to to answer. I'll tell you what, that's actually going to transition me into my next part that I wanted to touch on. So there's been a lot of talk lately about being a cult expert, about cult experts coming on to speak on shows and things like that. Am I a cult expert? Who, who is a cult expert? What makes a cult expert? Let me tell you guys my opinion on this. I mentioned it on Twitter recently. Am I a cult expert? When I got into this field, when I got into YouTube, I started YouTube because I felt like nobody was really talking about atheism anymore. They were all talking about social issues and political issues. And I felt like I needed to fill the void that was there. So that's why I started. And I, I decided to lean heavily into atheist content. As time went on, I started to realize that something really fucked up happened to me when I was little, being a part of Jehovah's Witnesses, and that there was nothing okay about that. And I started wondering, like, what is it that brought me to the point where I could believe such absurd things? And why do people join later in life, like, 28, 29, 30 years old, they joined Jehovah's Witnesses, they joined Mormonism when they didn't have a religious background at all. What brings them to that point? And why don't, why don't they leave once they do join? I kind of became obsessed with understanding the mindset, the psychology behind this. And during that time, I was going to school for substance abuse counseling, a psychology degree. It was a two-year degree. So it's not an undergrad. I get technically it's an undergrad, I think. Not a four-year degree, it's a two-year degree in substance abuse counseling. It gave me knowledge about the field of psychology that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I started really leaning into it on my YouTube channel and into my classes, studying about it. I I watched as many videos and tapes and recordings. FBI recordings of Jonestown as I could because I wanted to understand. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know what happened. I mean, I listened to the death tape from the FBI. Uh, what is it called? It's a death tape that Jim Jones uh, recorded while the people were being forced to drink cyanide-laced flavor aid. I listened to that tape beginning to end. I listened to the people crying. I listened to the babies screaming. I watched interviews from people who actually escaped Jonestown. I watched interviews from people who hid in the bushes from guards carrying around the shotguns looking for people to kill. I watched interviews from women who strapped their babies to their backs and walked through 30 miles of jungle to escape. I watched interviews of guards who weren't there on the compound when it happened, but still protected Jim Jones throughout that time. I watched all this stuff. I learned about all this stuff. I wanted to understand this stuff. I watched every indoctrination tape 
from Heaven's Gate. Every single one that they put out. I watched every exit video. Right, right at the end of their lives, right before they died, they sat down in front of a camera like a few days before in pairs. Two, two per video, basically. And they gave their last messages to their family members. And I listened to it. Every one of them. I listened to everything that every single one of those people had to say to their family before they died. I looked at the pictures of those people after they had actually done it. I read the FBI reports. One of my fans got the FBI reports through a Freedom of Information Act. The FBI turned the reports over to one of my fans and they sent me the, the full report of everything that happened that day, beginning to end. 39 bodies found, the, the bags over their heads, the applesauce that they were eating, and what it was laced with, and the whole nine yards. I even had the social security numbers of the people who died. I, I have looked at those pictures. I have read those stories. I have heard those people speak. Because I felt like it was important to understand how they got there. Felt like it was important to know so that we can avoid that kind of thing in the future. I've read an awful lot of books on this subject and not just Stephen Hassan's books. I've read Rick Allen Ross's book. I have read studies from ICSA, International Cultic Studies Association. I've read their models. There is a lot more than just the bite model. There are multiple models, and some of them are used in court cases. I choose to use the bite model for very specific reasons, which I've detailed in videos before. My point is, I know a lot about how cults operate. And if somebody wants to call me an expert, they can call me an expert. I will not call myself an expert, though. And here are my reasons for that. I feel like the moment I start calling myself an expert is the moment that I start viewing myself as infallible. And I am not infallible. I could be wrong sometimes. In fact, I'm probably wrong about some stuff in some of my videos. Somewhere in there, there are errors. I'm sure of it, 100% sure that somewhere in my video library, there are errors. I don't know where, and if I did, then I would fix them. But I'm not right 100% of the time. I am not the most knowledgeable person in the field. And try as I might, I could never be the most knowledgeable person in this field because I've only been doing this for three or four years. I only have a two-year degree in the field of psychology. I couldn't be the most knowledgeable person, but I do know a lot about this. So if somebody invites me onto a show as a cult expert, I will accept the title for that. Otherwise, I call myself a cult communicator. I, I don't call myself a cult expert. And 
if you guys call me a cult communicator, I'm more than happy accepting that. That really is what I am. I'm just a cult communicator. I know a lot about the subjects, and I talk about it on a regular basis, and I do my own analyses, but that does not necessarily make me an expert. We're going to take a break, a short 30-second break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Bernie Bros and the origin of the term. So give us 30 seconds, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the term Bernie bro. So I've been a Bernie Sanders fan since day one, okay? I've been a Bernie Sanders fan since the moment I heard about Bernie Sanders in 2016 when he ran uh, for president then. That's the, the, his very first announcement speech. I was like, that's my guy. And I've been a Bernie Sanders fan ever since, right? So I was watching a video of Bernie Sanders giving an interview recently, and somebody, I think it was probably CNN, somebody said to him, what are you doing about the Bernie bro situation, basically? So I, I got to thinking about this. Now, where did that term originate, Bernie bros? I found where it originated. So I wanted to watch that clip with you guys and just give it some thought, okay? So this clip was released by CNN. I hope I'm not copyright stricken for playing it. It was released by CNN like back in the 2016 election when Hillary Clinton was battling it out in the primaries with Bernie. So let's listen to this short clip. It's like 30 seconds long or something and let's see what it let's see what it says. The former president's words were stinging, blasting the Vermont senator and his supporters for what he called inaccurate and sexist attacks, including Bernie bros, the mobs of Sanders supporters who use crude language to attack Hillary Clinton backers online. People who have gone on online to defend Hillary and explain, just explain why they supported her, have been subject to attacks that are literally too profane, often not to mention sexist. To repeat, Sanders disavowing such tactics. You know, that, that anybody who is supporting me is doing sexist things is, we don't want them. I don't want them. Uh, that is not what this campaign is about. So that was the first instance of the use Bernie bros publicly, as far as I can tell. It was Bill Clinton creating this term basically out of thin air to try to find some way to attack Bernie Sanders, to crucify Bernie Sanders, to upset his supporters, to pull support away from Bernie and give it to Hillary. That was kind of the goal behind the term in the first place, it seems to me. I was watching this interview with Bernie Sanders, and this woman said, what are you doing about the Bernie bros? Bernie Sanders' answer to that was interesting. He said, I think he said something like, I don't want people who are mean and aggressive in my supporters. I don't want supporters like that, is basically what he said. But for the record, we have all kinds of people from different campaigns attacking our people. So I got to thinking, um, is that a tuquoque fallacy? 
Is that what he was presenting to us? To quoque, or the appeal to hypocrisy, is an informal fallacy that intends to discredit the opponent's argument by asserting the opponent's failure to act consistently in accordance with its conclusion. So basically, to summarize, to give you an idea of what the to quoque fallacy is, it's basically if somebody says... Uh, you're doing this thing and it's wrong. You are evading taxes and that's wrong. A two-quoque fallacy would be for that person to say, well, you didn't pay taxes last year either. That's not addressing the concern. That's not addressing the issue at hand. We're not talking about what I'm doing. We're talking about what you're doing. So let's figure out where you're going wrong, and then we can talk about other stuff. That's the two-quoque fallacy. So is what Bernie Sanders did the two-quoque fallacy. I was thinking about it, and ultimately, I don't think it is the two-quoque fallacy that Bernie presented there. My supporters are attacking people, yes, but there are other people attacking my supporters also. The reason I don't think that's the two-wrongs-make-a-right fallacy is because it's not something that Bernie Sanders is personally doing, and not something that he endorses. He specifically said at the end of that Bill Clinton clip, in fact, let me play it again for you. Sanders disavowing such tactics. That that anybody who is supporting me is doing sexist things is, we don't want them. I don't want them. Uh, That is not what this campaign is about. Bernie Sanders disavows that kind of behavior, says he doesn't want those supporters. That's not what the campaign is about. If Bernie Sanders wasn't doing anything about it or wasn't making any kind of comment at all, then comes out against other people's supporters, I could kind of see the argument for that being a two-quoque fallacy. Now there's a question of whether or not it's stochastic terrorism. So I'm sure you guys have heard of this term, but just in case you haven't, let me define stochastic terrorism for you. Stochastic terrorism is the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. The lone wolf attack was apparently influenced by the rhetoric of stochastic terrorism. So it would be like somebody whipping people up into a blood frenzy over Obama, claiming he's a Muslim who... I don't know, wants to turn the U.S. over to ISIS or some other thing, whatever. And there's this public figure that's doing it, like really laying into it and saying, Obama is going to be the death of us all, and he's, he's getting ready to turn it over. He's not going to give up the presidency when his term runs up and things like that. And saying that the only way to prevent ISIS from taking over the U.S. is for somebody to use their Second Amendment rights or something, some other thing like that. That would be stochastic terrorism. When somebody actually acts on that, that is stochastic terrorism, where somebody whips people into a blood frenzy, gets them all riled up, and uh, gets them to the point where somebody is going to act. Is that what Bernie Sanders is doing? No, absolutely not. We just listened to the guy. I mean, this is when the... This is when the term was created. Bernie Bros was created. And this is his immediate response the moment the term came out. Disavowing such tactics. You know, that, that anybody who is supporting me is doing sexist things 
is we don't want them. I don't want them. Uh, that is not what this campaign is about. To answer the question that I posed, um, is Bernie Sanders responsible for this? I would say that he would be responsible for it if he hadn't outright come out and said, do not do these things. I do not want supporters like this. To me, it feels like a, just another sleazy way of character assassinating the guy. But I don't know. You know, everybody's supporters are toxic to some extent. I haven't seen any examples of Bernie Sanders supporters being toxic. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does. I just haven't been there to witness it. Nobody is ever being a Bernie bro to me because I am a Bernie supporter. So that's probably why I haven't seen it. I don't know. I, I don't feel like I have the data to say whether or not Bernie Sanders supporter base is more toxic than any other person's supporter base. Um, but, you know, we just watched the term get fabricated by Bill Clinton right there in front of us. So I, I'm hesitant to believe that it's even a, a term that should exist. Yes, Bernie has toxic supporters. Yes, Joe Biden has toxic supporters. Yes, Hillary has toxic supporters. People are toxic, especially on the internet. You guys haven't logged into my Twitter account, but I can promise you I get some shit on there. I get some shit in my comment section. I get like death threats and stuff constantly. People are toxic online. That's just a fact of life, unfortunately. I don't like it either. But instead of blaming Bernie Sanders for that, I feel like we should find a way to address the, uh, the problem more broadly, as in figure out how to make Elizabeth Warren supporters less toxic, Bernie Sanders supporters less toxic, Joe Biden supporters less toxic, Trump supporters less toxic. How do we do that? I want to figure that out instead of kind of placing all of the blame on one guy who has outright said, let's not, I don't want anybody like that in my campaign anyways. So you don't hear Trump saying he doesn't want people like that in his campaign. Let's take a 30-second break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a religious group encouraging its congregants to drink poison. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. The next article I wanted to take a look at is titled Pastor Makes Congregants Drink Deadly Rat-X Poison to Show Their Faith. I've never heard of Rat-X. I guess it's a rat poison. But this is by Leonardo Blair, Christian Post reporter. This is ChristianPost.com is the name of the website. Uh, there is no date on it. Usually I read the date too, but it's very, very recent. I think it it's happened in the past couple of days. So let's give the article a read and see what it has to say. A South African pastor is causing a stir online for encouraging his congregants to drink deadly rat poison to show forth their faith. Now, before I continue on with this, I actually want to show you guys something real quick, something that I looked up. Where did this whole bit about drinking poison come from? Why do Pentecostal preachers, some Pentecostal preachers, encourage people to handle snakes and drink poison and stuff? Where is that from? That is originally from 
Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 19. So I wanted to read this so that we have an idea of where these groups are coming from when they encourage people to drink poison like this. It starts off, this is, I be, this is the NIV version. Uh, it starts off by saying, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses did not have verses 9 to 20. And that's extremely significant. Basically, every modern Bible has acknowledged that these verses were added later. Verses 9 to 19, the last 10 verses of the book of Mark were fabricated and added by monks two, 300 years after the fact. So everything that we read here was added to the Bible later to get people to act in a very specific way. So let's give it a read and see what it says. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week. Now remember, this is the end of the Gospel of Mark. So this is after Jesus was crucified, I believe. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking into the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, these are the significant verses that were added to the Bible hundreds of years after it was written. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons and they will speak in new tongues. So Pentecostals latched onto these fake verses, speaking in tongues, exorcisms. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Faith healing, that's where all this stuff comes from, these faked verses of the Bible. Faith healing, snake handling, poison drinking, speaking in tongues, exorcisms, it all comes from these verses that were faked. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So that's where all this came from. Let's go back to the article about this. At a Christian conference held at Grace Living Hope Ministries, Pastor Light Maniecki fed faith-filled congregants rat poison mixed with water to reportedly nourish their bodies and heal the sick on Saturday. The man of God, Prophet Light Maniecki, demonstrates power of faith by causing congregants to drink rat X, deadly poison to show forth their faith. As he was doing that, he said, we do not need to proclaim faith because we are believers. If Neop boys can smoke rat radix for more than eight years, who are we? Death has no power over us, the church noted in a Facebook post along with pictures of the pastor presenting the poison. Then he declared life from above upon the water mixed with radix and spoke nourishment unto bodies and healing unto the sick. A multitude of congregants voluntarily ran to the front to have a drink of the deadly poison. After declaring nourishment and healing, Prophet Light was the first one to drink, the church added. According to the Sowetan, Naop is a highly addictive drug 
made from a range of ingredients from low-grade heroin, draga, rat poison, and detergents containing chlorine and ammonia. Oh, my God. Many critics of the pastor, however, were not amused with Monyeki's public antics and challenged him to demonstrate the power of God more constructively. Well, that's something. Go to hospitals and demonstrate the power of healing on people with strokes and people who are comatose. Do not poison people and call it an act of power. The Lord has said his people will be misled, for they lack knowledge. Let us be careful of false prophets, warned Matladi Tholo. That's extremely concerning that this group is doing it. Look at this. There are pictures of them doing this. You know what rat poison does to you? From my understanding, now this could be incorrect, so you're going to want to look this up. I have come to understand that rat poison, if you consume it, will make you bleed from every hole in your body. Your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, everything. You'll just start bleeding from every hole in your body. Light, first of all, you are not a prophet, at least not of the God in heaven. You don't know what the word prophet means. You and all who are like you, the snakes, grass, doom, and whatever prophets... All these things you are doing to the desperate people of God, you will give an account for. I pray that you repent and forsake your evil ways. You claim to be a prophet, but you don't know that your time is limited here on earth. Please confess and repent before it's too late for you. God cares about you more than he cares about anything else, added Kethawo Waha Sefuma. I'm not used to speaking the language, so the vowels don't really roll off my tongue as well as... They would for other people. This is the kind of thing you get with religious extremism. I'm telling you, this is what you can expect from it. This isn't even a rare story. This kind of thing happens. There is a group out there called, I think, Genesis 2, who believes in drinking bleach to cure illnesses. I mean, just look at what happened to Jonestown. I just talked about this a few, just earlier. Look at what happened to Jonestown. They drink poison like this. Pentecostals used to drink poison just like this to build up an immunity. They drink a really, really small amount to start so that they're, they would build up an immunity to it. And they would do it again and again and again over time until they could full-on drink poison without dying. This is the kind of thing that reading an ancient book full of fairy tales leads you to. Seriously. I mean, the verses in Mark were fabricated in the first place, and look what's happening. I mean, those are widely accepted to be fabricated. Look what's happening as a result of those verses. Scary stuff. Tell you what, why don't we take another break? When we come back, we're going to be talking about Ken Ham, Kent Hovind, Young Earth Creationism, and the state of the Ark Encounter. So give us about 30 seconds, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. So I wanted to take a look at this article by The Friendly Atheist. This is actually written by Hemant Mehta on The Friendly Atheist blog. The title is, Ark Encounter Ticket Sales Went Up a Bit in January. Attendance at Ark Encounter has increased a bit compared to the same period last year after a month that saw a major dip. Thanks to a public record request by local paleontologist Dan Phelps, 
We now have the numbers for December. You can read more background about how it's calculated here. The bottom line, Ark Encounter had 15,790 paying visitors in January. That's a bit more than the 14,885 they had last January. Here are all the attendance numbers we know, along with the safety fee that Answers in Genesis has paid to the city of Williamstown. The public nature of that fee is how we know the attendance numbers at all. And I actually know some atheist activists really fought for this information so i appreciate their work i wish i could name them i think it was fffrf and possibly jim helton and american atheists worked on making some of this information public so thank you to all of those people keep in mind all of this is happening as ark encounter is dealing with a hilarious million dollar lawsuit involving rain damage that is funny ham may have forestalled a more catastrophic drop but it's likely due to factors that have nothing to do with interest in a biblical myth. The cold weather will no doubt limit attendance in coming months, and the park will be closed on Sundays and Mondays until next month, but there's a conference center on the premises that allows thousands of people to visit the park in one fell swoop. There's also a playground and petting zoo. They've also been advertising on Facebook and on Fox News. Big surprise, Fox News is advertising for them. All of that requires a lot of money. The question is whether the investment is worth it in the long run. Remember that actual attendance is higher than these numbers represent because kids get in for free, as do members with lifetime passes. But giving away freebies to children and life members doesn't help the local economy as much as drawing in first-time customers who are ready to spend money or conference attendees who are there for another reason. <sighs> All right, so long time ago when I first started YouTube, I decided to, I knew Logic at the time, and he was going through his Hello, I'm a Scientist series, and he was also going through his Hello, My Name is Kent Hovind series. I think that's the name of his series. Really, really good series, both of them. So I was watching those by Logic, and I decided, you know what? Kent Hovind has like a billion of these video seminars I'm going to watch the video seminars beginning to end. There are 26 of them, and they're roughly two hours each, between an hour and a half and two and a half hours long each. So 26 of them, about two hours on average long. So that's like 52 hours worth of video seminars from Kent Hovind. I watched all of it. It took me forever. And it's like I was looking for cohesion between his beliefs like he's got video seminar series on dinosaurs and what they are and are they still here on earth and what happened to them and were they on the ark he's got a video series on, or he's got a video seminar on adam and eve is it a real story is it a real literal story he's got a video seminar on everything right and he details Christian belief beginning to end, young earth creationist belief beginning to end in vivid detail. After watching those videos, after watching the entire seminar series, which I've kind of been doing a little bit lately too, that guy is disturbingly smart and charismatic, like to a very disturbing degree. If he wanted to, he could be a cult leader. I don't know if he is right now. I haven't seen any evidence of it. I'm not saying he's not. I don't know. But he could be very, very easily if he wanted. Ken Ham is not anywhere near as charismatic as Kent Hovind is. 
and he's not anywhere near as good of a debater. Kent Hovind is just a wicked debater. And I actually covered both of these guys on my main channel like forever ago. I talked about whether or not they were cult leaders, whether or not they had cults, and all kinds of information about Kent Hovind, where he got his degree, whether or not it's a legitimate degree, and things like that. You guys should go check that out on my main channel if you haven't seen it. It's really interesting. I may end up redoing the whole video because it's a little bit older. But the fact that Kent Hovind is as good at debating and as charismatic as he is is extremely concerning to me it's good news that we're getting here that the ark encounter isn't really growing at a you know super fast rate and they're dealing with lawsuits and things like that that's good news because i don't want to that thing is just a toxic mess right there but we're still fighting a battle right now against young earth creationism and it should not be discounted it's extremely important that we pay attention to it and recognize how serious this is as recently as a few years ago i think 40 percent of the u.s population uh, believed that Noah's Ark was a real literal story i think the number has gone down significantly now but that's still entirely too high entirely too high i think last year around july there was an ark encounter protest and aaron ra was there seth andrews was there jim helton from american atheists was there i'm assuming there's going to be another protest this year probably in july if so i will be there i would love to go there and hang out with those guys and do the whole protesting thing so if you guys live around the Kentucky vicinity, or near the Ark Encounter, or near the Creation Museum, and you want to meet me, no solid dates yet. I don't even know if it's happening yet, but if it is, I will be there. I'll tell you what, that's where I'm going to end it for the night, but before I get off of here, let me just check some super chats. Got one super chat from Evan Inge. Thank you, Evan Inge. I appreciate that. $5. If the rest of the bite model were to be destroyed tomorrow, but you could pick one point on the bite model to stay, which would it be and why? Good question. I covered this a little bit earlier. It would probably be modify behavior with rewards and punishments because that is basically programming in a cult identity and replacing your authentic identity with the cult identity. That is one of the defining features of a cult in my eyes uh, under behavior control. I touched on four points on the bite model that are really, really significant and important to having a cult. One under each category. The one under B, modifying behavior with a system of rewards and punishments, I believe to be the most significant on the entire model. So thank you for the super chat. I really appreciate that. I'll tell you what, that's where we're going to end it for the night. I appreciate you guys coming on and giving this a listen, and I will talk to you next week. If you like what I do and you want to make sure I can continue to do it, you can support me in a few ways. First, you can support me on Patreon. That's probably the best way. But if you want to get something back for your support, you can check out my Teespring. I sell all kinds of shirts and stickers and stuff on there. Second, you can support me by checking out my Etsy store. I sell 3D printed stands for every system from the original Nintendo to the Xbox One. And finally, if you want to support me in other ways, you can check me out on my other channels. I have the podcast channel, which is where I talk about whatever's on my mind, politics, social issues, 
issues, whatever. You can also find it everywhere podcasts can be found. Or you can check out the videos on my main channel where I focus on destructive cults. As it is with most channels these days, I rely on the support of viewers like you to keep my channel alive, so sharing my work is extremely helpful. Anyways, check me out in all those places if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, guys.